This is Winning Slowly, taking a long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art, because doing good work takes time. I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caradini. And today we're going to talk about The Web We Have to Save, which is an article by Hossein Darakshan. I hope I pronounced that correctly. I apologize for any mangling of the name, which is an important article that is about the downfall or the morphing or the change or however you want to quantify the difference between 2008 and 2015 in how people read things on the internet as quantified by blogging versus social media. We thought this would be an interesting follow-up to last week's discussion of how blogging and social media have changed in much the same span. We took a, a good long look at mommy bloggers and middle-aged women taking over Facebook and taking over meme generation. So you'll definitely want to go back and give that a listen. Mm -hmm. This is a much more serious topic in a lot of ways. I mean, it opens with an essay by a man who just got out of jail in Iran who was jailed for his political views back in 2008. That he mostly showed on the internet. Right, on his blog, which was very widely read at the time. And he came out and started looking around on the internet for the first time in the better part of a decade and said, wow. Things are not like they were in 2008. And that makes a lot of sense. Looking back to 2008, that was in a lot of ways the heyday of blogging, especially political blogging, in the sense that he describes it here. You had a lot of power and clout in the hands of individual bloggers still. Some of the forces that have pushed since then in the direction of blogging networks and uh, different approaches to commenting and all sorts of shifts that have occurred in that span hadn't really kicked off yet or were just beginning to. Individual bloggers were much more influential at that point, which is a, a note we've touched on both earlier in this season and in previous seasons. And comments were a very different thing. And as he gets to in a follow-up piece, hyperlinks and a web built on the back of linking to each other was a much bigger part of things before the advent of social media in its more mature form, as we've discussed a bit. And the idea that all of your links are going to come from Twitter or Facebook, which was very new and very much not the driving factor then that it has become since. And so this is a very weird concept for someone who has essentially been Rip Van Winkle, who had left the internet at stage one and came back at stage two and missed everything in the middle. Um, this is a very weird reintegration into the internet. And so as he writes in this article where he talks about the differences from the beginning of his time as a blogger in the early 2000s to now, he's kind of grappling with how the internet has changed and whether that can be a good thing or a bad thing. And he thinks it's largely a bad thing and that the blogging sorts of networks that were enacted in the early 2000s have to be saved, which is where the, the title comes from, and that there's a fundamental good that we're losing by conceding the way that we find content and build networks totally to social networks. And he's not the first to say this by a long shot. No, but he does have a significant amount of clout as somebody who went to jail for basically this concept. <laughs> so he that's... Yeah. He has some clout here. He has things invested in an extreme way. And so it's very interesting. We saw this when it first came out, and we read it, and we talked about it a little. 
And we both basically said, thumbs up, this is true. The web is way different. And we filed it to get back to it. That was perhaps on a weekday, maybe a Thursday. Oddly, on Sunday, as I was uh, leaving church, a friend came up to me and said, have you read this article, The Web We Have to Save? And I said, yes, I, I actually have. <laughs> That's that's amazing. He's like, yeah, I read it and I thought you would have opinions. I was like, I, I do have opinions. <laughs> that's true. You're right. Has and this ever happened to you at church before? I, no, never. <laughs> like, this is the first time that anybody has said, hey, I read this thing about the way the internet works and I thought that you might be interested in talking to me about it. <laughs> and furthermore, beyond the, the ego boosting, somebody knows what I do part of, <laughs> of this, it's fascinating that this article where he says people don't interact over online content the same way that they used to, over that particular article and that particular argument, someone came up to me in real life and said, <laughs> have you read this? And that's fascinating, particularly because his argument is that people don't do that online, much less in real life. And so there's also the discrepancy that his article has 3,577 likes on Medium and 121 comments. And that means there's been a whole lot more than 3,577 people who've read it. Maybe up to 20,000, which was the number he said that he was getting consistently. Who knows? But it's an interesting dichotomy to say, this is something we need to save. I'm working in a low-level social media because Medium in terms of social media is... It's kind of a stretch to say that it's the same thing as Facebook, but it is in its definition a, a social media. One of the things that goes with that, though, that is striking is I would guess that the vast majority of those hits did not come from people seeing links to it on blogs. They came from people who saw it linked on Twitter and Facebook. And so while he has gotten enormous readership, the way he got it in many ways bears out his point insofar as people do read these things they're not getting there by other blogs you and i didn't get there by other blogs in fact uh, i got it That's in my true. medium digest and said oh that looks interesting i got it in my medium digest too and then we both i think we both shared it to each other or one of us beat the other by a few minutes and yeah. dropping it in our slack channel where we talk about these things it was very much obvious to us that it was an interesting topic mm -hmm. but i wouldn't have seen it on any of the blogs i read either and and i do read a few i have a fair number that i subscribe to but i don't know that even any of them linked to it and so there is certainly a way in which his critique of how things have changed at least accurately sums up the situation people aren't on the whole linking back and forth and writing long responses on their own blogs to these things and those getting ongoing conversations, except perhaps, as we noted last week, in the mommy blogosphere, but not in the political world as much. And to some extent, to some extent in the tech blogosphere. A little, yeah. Because anytime that Marco Arment <laughs> or guy. Ed Williams posts anything, everybody posts about <laughs> it. So there is still a sentiment where these are people that are in our community and they say things and we say things back to them. But in the political blogging sphere, he's right. This doesn't exist in the same way that it used to. Mm -hmm. So there's a couple interesting things here that we want to look at. One is his core idea is that the hyperlink is the element of the open web that we need to save and that revitalizing the hyperlink is what will make 
the open web valuable again and what will make it vital again. And that's something that we are, we're going to discuss. The second thing is the tension between social media and blogs, particularly because he posted this on his social media because he didn't feel like he could get paid to do it on his blog. And he could at Medium vis-a-vis -vis Matter, which is a channel of Medium. So there's a whole amount of things that are, are going on interrelated to that, under that, above that. But those are the two that I really want to hone in on and that we're going to talk about. So what does he mean by the hyperlink as the core of what we have to save? What he means is this. A culture of hyperlinking between distinct standalone sites because the hyperlink as a piece of technology is heavily used by the very social media he's critiquing hyperlinks are everywhere on Twitter in fact one of the things that has been perhaps frustrating to many old-time users of Twitter over the last half decade is its shift from a more conversational to a more hyperlink heavy medium and every time you scroll through Facebook you click on a link to a profile and that's a hyperlink and you click on a link to a video that someone shared and that's a hyperlink and it takes you to YouTube and and so on so what he's getting at is not merely the technology of the hyperlink but the culture of hyperlinks as the essential way of getting around on the internet this is to be distinguished from jumping into the flow on Twitter or Facebook and linking out from there, but ultimately treating that as your sort of base from which you launch out and to which you return after every sort of excursion into the wilds of the open web. And this is actually a topic, I'll link a, a blog post I wrote a few years ago in the show notes. It's something that's occurred to me as well in the past. I remember early days on the internet where my browsing habits were here's a link on a site and I would click it and I would click it and I would click another link and I would click another link and those would just take me forward off in this trail. And I was thinking about how tabbed browsing changed that because you could just open a new tab rather than having to try to traverse purely forward and backward. And what he's getting at is that now instead of a blog and its links being the source of your links to other spaces and those blogs being the source of yet further links to other spaces. For the most part, people don't operate that way. People operate with the streams of Twitter or Facebook or Pinterest being their primary starting point and their primary ending point as well. That's where they go to share content. They don't write their own blog post about it. They post a tweet about it or they pin it or what have you. And so his argument is that web pages outside social media are dying, which I don't thoroughly agree with. I think there's plenty of web pages that are thoroughly powered on their own speed. They may get shared around in social media, but they already had trajectory. They already had their own identity. They're going to keep going regardless of whether Facebook goes under and some other social media comes along. I, I write one of these blogs. You know, Perez Hilton writes one of these blogs. <laughs> For There's two totally different kinds of content. <laughs> two totally different kinds of content. There's... You know, until recently, Andrew Sullivan wrote these kinds of blogs, Daring Fireball. There, there, are, there are spaces on the web where people do this sort of work. Now, he's talking specifically in a context of political blogging. And as we're saying, there have been dramatic shifts in that market. There have been dramatic changes in the way that we consume news. And so before we can even 
get away from it, we're moving back into news and ads because this is part of how the blogging sphere has changed is that news and ads started to creep in on their space. People started to get poached to go write for those blogs like The Atlantic um, or leave them and then come back or form you know connections to other large organizations and they were still the semi-autonomous blog partially because you got to get paid right and that's and that's how the the blogosphere was changing was that people weren't donating enough money that the appeal the draw of getting paid by the atlantic or by these other publications and some of that went on on a freelance basis and then other people maintained their blogs as they were freelancing but news and ads it comes back to that particularly as we get into the next point um, which is about how he decided to get paid or not get paid for <laughs> writing this article. But the hyperlink thing is intriguing to me because I I have a, a tough time saying that the hyperlink is the core thing of the web that we have to save. I do agree that the hyperlink is how people get around the web and that it's how blogs link to each other. But his argument is more about the stream versus individual blogging than it is how we process and understand media. And the stream is sort of how we process and understand media. And so it it connects. He says the stream means you don't need to open so many websites anymore. You don't need numerous tabs. You don't even need a web browser. You open Twitter or Facebook on your smartphone and dive deep in. But of course... Well, that's kind of true. But at the same time, at the height of the blog revolution, we were also at the height of people's use of RSS readers. And those had the same function. They were different technologically, and they were not as stream-like. And particularly, they weren't like either the firehose that Twitter can become or, well, I suppose it depends on how many feeds you subscribed to, or the curated not showing you everything approach that Facebook takes. But certainly when I was reading blogs in 2008, I was doing it in an RSS reader. And so was I. I was launching tabs out from that RSS reader occasionally when someone linked something interesting. But my habit hasn't changed all that much insofar as I had a central point to launch from. It's what the central point was that has changed. Was it something where I curated my own list of blogs to read in the form of an RSS reader? Or was it something that's more socially driven like Twitter and Facebook? And one of the points he rather understandably but unfortunately elides, I think, is that the one of the big reasons that social media are effective and popular is because it's one thing to say, here are people who are writers whom I want to see things from. It is something else to say, here are people who are readers, who maybe aren't writers, but because they are readers, they're happy to share things that they've read that they found interesting. And that opens up a whole different set of opportunities to share things that you might not have seen shared, or you might not have seen linked just by the people who wrote blogs. Right. And that's interesting because he critiques social media by saying these services carefully scan our behavior and delicately tailor our news feeds with posts, pictures, and videos they think we would most likely want to see. And if you're reading this article, then you're going to get more things like this article. Like <laughs> That's the flip side of this, is that if yep. you choose to want this type of, of media, you're going to get served that by Facebook and Twitter. And I think this underlies a particular problem 
that I see with this article is that there are elements of blogging that have changed. But the biggest thing that's changed in the last six, seven years is that what we talked about last week, a giant new set of demographics have appeared on the web. Lots of people who don't read politics ever, even when there was a newspaper version of it, <laughs> are now on the internet. And so this idea that there is now less people who are interested in politics on the internet and social media has gobbled them up and replaced all of their interests with baby pictures and cat videos is perhaps not as apocalyptic <laughs> as it seems. Because I think people who are interested in media and who are interested in international politics and national politics, I think those people are still interested. I don't think that they suddenly got less interested because Facebook shows them baby pictures. <laughs> I think that perhaps they get a feedback loop that makes them more invested because if they're invested in a certain type of politics, they're going to get more of those political arguments via Facebook. It's going to tailor the cat videos out of their algorithm. It is always easy to mistake a shift in proportion for a shift in actual numbers. And that's a mistake we have to be careful to avoid. It may well be that those same 20,000 readers are out there and willing and ready to jump on and follow him and listen to what he has to say. The thing that has caught his attention is that there are now another 200,000 or 2 million or 20 million moms sharing pictures of their babies. But that hasn't changed the fact that those 20,000 are out there. It just means that they're a much smaller proportion of the overall internet using population. Now, the flip side of what Stephen just said, which I agree with, is that yes, it's true that the algorithm will do those things. But on the other hand, and we touched on this a bit last season, and it's something we certainly plan to come back to, algorithms aren't neutral. Algorithms have biases because algorithms, as Alan Jacobs pointed out in something like Theses 54 to 56 or something like that, algorithms are programmed by humans and they aren't impartial arbiters of interests and they don't respond perfectly to what we might want to see. And it becomes very difficult, for example, if, say, I want to see baby pictures of my friends and also political stuff. Facebook does, isn't smart enough to do that. And maybe someday it will get smart enough. But aside from that, the real issue is that when things are filtered primarily by an algorithm, you have limitations that aren't necessarily there when you're the one in charge of your own curation. And this is something else that I would take a question at. And I can't make a statement here, but it's a question. I want to know if people entirely depend on Facebook and Twitter now to find their news. Now, that's that's the overall statement. <laughs> that's the, the news, you know, the headline, the hot take. Is that actually true? Because I know I don't. I know you don't. I know a lot of people that don't. I know people that still email articles to each other. I, I don't think that this is as epidemic as it seems, particularly because there's a whole bunch of people that were never, ever going to do that who are now on social media. And so I think that there are still practices that go on in communities. And there I think there are still online and offline communities of people who are interested in these sorts of topics. In fact, in some ways, the internet has done the thing it promised to do and accelerated the 
ability of some of these people who have these political concerns to be able to organize, which is why you see all of these organizations like Electronic Freedom Forum and Fight for 15 and environmental groups. These are all able to harness the web, broadly speaking, in a way that you know wasn't really around in the early 2000s. Now, people were trying to do it, but as the web has grown over the past 10 years, that's something that's a lot more common, is using the power of the internet to connect people who have specific political visions and then start to make incidental change in the world, like the fact that New York now has a $15 an hour uh, minimum wage for, for fast food workers and that Seattle has it. That's something that was beyond the pale until you know five, 10 years ago because there was never more than a couple people in in any given place or in any given arena that we're thinking, yes, this is a good idea. Right. And one thinks of things like the Arab Spring and the Occupy movement and Black Lives Matter and all of these kinds of things that have pushed issues to national and international attention mm -hmm. that did happen because of the stream that wouldn't have happened merely with blogs that in some sense couldn't have happened merely with blogs. Right. So granting all of those things, I still think there's something to his critique because I do still think that, and, and I know you agree here, though we might have slightly different takes on what shape it takes. Nonetheless, even with all the goods those things have, they're still formative. And the way our technology behaves and the expectations it engenders do produce changes in our behavior. And we're responsible for those because we're the ones that make the technologies. But those are very real things. And that's true whether the technology is a shovel or whether it's Facebook. Right. And I agree, but I'm increasingly becoming concerned that we offload a lot of our agency mm -hmm. onto these things and say like, yeah, the algorithm is doing X. And that's true. The algorithm is doing X. But that doesn't mean that you're not responsible for that. And that doesn't mean that you can use that as a defense in these sorts of, of <laughs> cases. Right. Like that's something that I'm seeing more and more, which mm -hmm. makes sense. Technology is everywhere. Of course we would make an argument about how it's affecting our behavior, but it's still a tool. And no matter how much it shapes the environment, no matter how much it constrains certain actions, if it constrains actions to a total degree, then it's beyond the scope of what this article is really concerned about. He does briefly <laughs> touch on Instagram, which refuses links entirely. And he Which hates drives me that. crazy. <laughs> and yeah, and it's terrible. And that's a fair critique, I think. I think it's a totally fair critique. Even much more than Facebook or Twitter, which in many ways are still built on the link, even as they want to right. bring more of that content internal. Yeah, I think he's completely right when it comes to Instagram. If everything became like Instagram, there wouldn't be an open web in any real sense. That's just... I to me, a prima facie fact. But I think that as we go through this big round of change, whether it's 30, 10, 5, whatever, how long you want to say this, this switch from you know pre-2000 mentality to post-2000 mentality takes, I think we have to be careful to not say, well, you know, Facebook serves me ads and Facebook filters my content and so yeah i didn't see that because i i just didn't get served case in point i didn't get served any news or ads whatsoever any content nothing about the planned parenthood stuff when it broke 
nothing. Like Facebook has figured out that abortion is not something I click on. That's because I don't click on abortion things. Like that's that's a real thing. Like I read them other ways. I don't click through Facebook because I know that if I do click on those things in Facebook and Twitter, then my Facebook you're going to get Twitter nothing else. Get overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah. So even though I care about those issues, and I've talked about that before on this show, I refuse to click any article about abortion in either of those social media. That means that. When Chris pointed out that something was happening, I couldn't just say, oh, man, I guess it's not important because my Facebook didn't tell me about it. I had to go look something up and read it via Google or, or via Google. I searched on Google for this, and then I read an article from a place that I trust, and you know, we go on and we go on. And so I think that acknowledging the ways that algorithms work, but also acknowledging the ways that they are integrated into our lives and that we can't deny that, but we can't depend on that. We can't right. say this is how it is now because technology. No. And I think your point is exactly exactly what we need to take away here. Facebook and Twitter do have their flaws and they are serious flaws. And the article rightly identifies some of those. But more importantly, all of these technologies have consequences, and we need to continually, and this is something we've said going all the way back to season zero, we need to continually reevaluate the technologies we use and the consequences they have and make choices consciously and conscientiously, exactly as you're talking about doing, and recognize that especially in algorithmically driven systems, the inputs will have consequences and the things we do with the systems will have consequences. And it also behooves creators of algorithms to take ethical responsibility. That's a theme we've right. come up with before and we'll come back to again. Right. But in all of those things, we need to stop merely blaming the technology. We need to acknowledge the way that technology shapes the environment, and we need to express our agency by taking responsibility for our actions and the actions of the algorithms and things we create along the way. Right. And that's a political statement, y'all. Like, <laughs> that's not just, hey, you should do this. Like, that's a political statement of how you should interact with technology and how technology interacts with us. Like, you have agency. Use it. Before you go, we'd like to draw your attention to someone who responded well to the ever-present threat of getting hacked and the ever-present actuality of getting hacked. Two Cows is a fairly large internet company. They own Domain Registrar Hover and small cell phone company Ting, and they apparently had a small breach on their servers. And the first thing they did was presumably patch whatever vulnerability, but then they went ahead and reset everybody's password. And we had a brief back and forth with them with our Winning Solely account on Twitter and just said, hey, good job. And they said, thanks. We want to put user security first. And this was the right way to handle it. And they sent everybody an email and they put up a little notice on their website. And they just made absolutely sure that even though they were quite confident that nothing had been taken, regardless, in case they were wrong, Everybody was going to have to go through that slight hassle of resetting their password to make mm -hmm. sure that they were safe. And we just want to say good job because that's pretty rare that people do it that well. Yeah. So way to go, two cows. Way to go. The music at the beginning was Plastic Skateboard by Brave Baby. It's the first single from their new album, Electric Friends, which comes out August 14th. Please don't use it without permission. We asked and they said yes. 
Thanks to Jeremy W. Sherman for sponsoring the show, and you can see the full list of sponsors in the show notes. If you'd like to sponsor us, you can set up a monthly pledge at patreon.com slash winningslowly or give directly at cash.me slash dollar sign winningslowly. We will give 10% of any support we get to the Internet Archive to help prevent link rot. You can follow us on Twitter or app.net at winningslowly or follow our Facebook page. And as always, thanks for listening.